Welcome to the podcast. My name is David. Let's save the world. And for this episode, we could have covered so many things, but we've decided to tackle social anxiety. In just a few moments, I'll be speaking with Jill Gavargizian, the writer and director of an amazing new film called The Stylist. And a little bit later, we'll be speaking with Dr. Christine Perdon. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. She is the director of clinical training in the PhD program at the University of Waterloo. And she's the co-author of Overcoming Obsessive Thoughts. But first, there's been a lot of changes here at this podcast, Will Save the World. So I want to give you a little bit of an update on what we're doing. This podcast is now part of a larger effort that we're undertaking called Geek Wellness Education. We are a recognized 501c3 nonprofit that brings mental health and social community education and resources to the geek community. So if you'd like more information on what we're doing or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit gwecontact.org. And you can reach us by email at our new address. That's info at gwecontact.org. Or, of course, on social media at GWE Contact on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. As I mentioned before, we have the Horror Heels, a tribute to Child's Play's John LaFia uh, panels that are going to be at at least six horror conventions in 2021. And we just announced a new initiative that we're starting off with in our hometown of Richmond, Virginia, and hopefully we'll be expanding from there called Heroes Assemble. That is a that is our new plan to partner with cosplayers as superheroes and princesses and sci-fi heroes to visit and uplift the spirits of seriously ill children. So as I mentioned, you can go to our website at gwecontact.org for all of that info. But listen, I'm really excited about the stylist. Uh, it comes out on March 1st. So in just a few days, and it's about a lonely hairstylist who becomes obsessed with the lives of her clients and descends into murderous madness. I've seen it. It's fantastic. And it touches on a lot of issues that we cover here and a lot of issues that I've dealt with myself. So please welcome to the show the co-writer and director of The Stylist, Jill Gavargizian. Thank you. Again, I, uh, I I love the movie. I I I cannot wait to uh, buy it and watch it again. Uh, so um, let's get into this. Uh, you have been a hairdresser for uh, several years. Uh, what is it? My sister's a hairdresser. Uh, some of her, obviously, a lot of her best friends are hairdressers. Uh, what is it about this profession and the kind of... It's a it's kind of a weird intimacy between strangers, <laughs> one of which has their hands in your hair, uh, between the hairdresser and the client that you thought would make a good setup for not only the short, which is amazing that people can see right now, but also the uh, feature length. Yeah, I like you said, I've been a hairstylist for now. Oh my god, I don't. Need- 18 years I'm not sure anymore (laughs) I don't know how that much time's passed but um it's a really unique relationship because there's this this layer of kind of you know you don't know there's this it's almost like a confession or a therapist where you feel safe I feel like talking about even more than you may say to one of your best friends and I read about one theory for that and I thought it was interesting and it kind of boiled it down to the idea that, or the fact that it is a a physical thing, you know, like, like you said, your hands are in their hair, you're washing their hair. It is intimate physically and emotionally. And it's something about the physical touch and it being something that is open and in public. They say that's something like that, affects us psychologically and makes us feel closer and it they compared it to the difference of like stuff that's done behind closed doors like a massage therapist or 
I mean, I, I, doctors, obviously, we don't feel comfortable like that. But it just said something about the physical part of the job and it being open. And it was just really interesting. I never thought about it that way. Um, but I did think like this is a really unique world to explore in film. And it's something that like I kind of just, you know, it's like the the indie horror uh thought process it's like what do i know what do i have access to that's unique to me and so i thought you know this is like a story i could write and really understand it and my hope was that a hairstylist could watch it and be like yeah that is how that is um that was one of my biggest goals with the whole thing <laughs> yeah uh i and hopefully no one out no one is out there doing uh what she does in this film uh <laughs> because no I get so many silly questions, which I understand about, you know, did some client that you were upset at inspire this whole thing or, and it's really not that way. I know that's funny, but it's just. Well, I, I think yeah. one of the great things about <laughs> horror is, and because I've heard a lot of things about, oh, well, horror movies shouldn't deal with mental illnesses. Look, it's not saying that every person with a mental illness is going to be a killer just like it's saying that not every hairdresser is going to be an awful person it's just saying this particular one is dealing with some issues and takes them out in a pretty bad and pretty painful way i'd imagine uh thanks for drugging the people in advance uh so um i saw somewhere that uh tech uh, that leatherface was an was an inspiration which I can definitely see that wearing uh, skin in a different sort of way. Uh, and also Dr. Giggles, which is a awesome. No one ever talks about that film. Uh, but this isn't a typical slasher film. We are with the, the killer the entire film. Uh, and not only do we kind of see the world through her eyes, we sympathize with her. I know I there's a couple, like I, I think I mentioned to you before, there's a couple oof moments in there where I'm like, oh, man. I've been there. That sucks for her. Uh, so, um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you wanted to do your take on slashers, and uh, some of the, some of the inspiration that went into making kind of a grounded, e emotional, uh, psychological slasher. Yeah, when you bring up Doctor Giggles, which is hilarious and great, it's that uh, kind of time period of slashers. Is, some, is just something that came to mind when the idea first came to me. Like, you'd think there already would have been a kind of funny hairstylist killer slasher movie in that early 90s period when there were lots of profession-driven slashers. But then, I, you know, with my take on it, I really didn't want to do the traditional slasher setup, which is, you know, more the victim's point of view and just like a fun, not super developed killer in your traditional slasher. With this, we kind of followed, I was trying try to turn to, there's not very many films that are from the perspective of the killer, like Maniac is one, and I think as disgusting as Maniac is, you also feel sad for him. <laughs> um, and May was another film I really turned to, which she's not really a slasher, but it's a very similar kind of, you watching a character break sure. down completely and like self-destruct and self-sabotage. I've always been interested in anti-hero type stories and just films about people that are confrontational and that make you really think it's just that it's just not black and white. You know, someone isn't just the one bad thing they did and they're not the only good thing they did. It's a much more confusing, layered thing than that. And I just have always loved films that make you walk away and you're thinking about it for a long time. So that was our hope with this character. and. We're not really trying to justify what she does, but we're just trying to explain, explain there's always a reason, there's a million reasons for what led people to a certain place. It doesn't justify it, but it there is a reason. And I think a lot of times it's ignored and people are just called monsters. And I have some super dark sympathy for the stories behind, you know, what makes someone get yeah, to that yeah, point. I, uh, as do I. I mean, um, the I don't know what the... I don't know what that point is where you go, where it's someone like me who's, who deals with depression and anxiety and all that to where we go, uh, 
I'm sick of destroying myself. Let me go get help. And and what teeter someone over the edge of to where they're scalping strangers? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what that yeah. is, but that that is a tragic thing. Even though we're not justifying what someone will do after the fact. Yeah. And with her, her routine and we had, I, I kind of battled with this with the writing cause I wanted her to be feel really grounded, but I also had to accept myself that what she's doing is very over the top. It's not very, um, if you compare it to any real serial killer, it's not very cause <laughs> to do something so dramatic. So I really battled with this, like, this line I was trying to hold of like what she does is very theatrical and over the top and not believable, but I want her still to feel um, at least emotionally. Oh, sure. And I I definitely think Um, that watching the film, you, you don't get, you don't get taken out of the film when she does that kind of thing, because the rest of the film, you're so grounded with her that it feels like a natural thing for her. Bravo for that. Because like you said, it is kind of an out there thing that she's doing. (laughs) Yes. So um, when this when this interview gets published, it will be uh, Women in Horror Month. Um, now, obviously, there are male hair- hairdressers and all of that, but a lot of the aspects of this film, the focus on uh, a wedding and uh, the bridesmaids' relationships with each other that's kind of sprinkled in throughout, I don't feel like this would be the same movie if a guy had come up with it. Um, Maybe maybe that's me being uh, a little bit prejudiced, but honestly, a lot of my favorite horror movies are coming from women these days. Uh, I think that the it's maybe not a coincidence that so many unique voices are coming from female directors. Uh, and previously, maybe we maybe we didn't get those. Uh, maybe females didn't get those opportunities. Uh, yeah. Do you where do you, where do you see horror? I, I guess not only historically, but is it finally changing now that we have your revenge and Babadook and you know all of these amazing films that are coming out? Is it is is the landscape changing? I think it really is, and I think it it even expands beyond horror. I've noticed in film in general that finally it's becoming a focus to get more people behind the and different types of people behind the camera. Um, I think naturally, like what you're saying with these different perspectives is we've just for so long, it's been so common that almost every film was made by the same type of person, a, you know, a, a white male is, was the majority. So that's why we were getting so much of the same type of story about the same type of character. It's just like, it's natural that if you have different people telling stories, you'll get different types of stories. Like stylist being so female set heavy and, the female centric term has become kind of annoying to me because so many people use it. I feel like just to promote stuff anymore. Um, but yeah, it just happened naturally. Like as a hairstylist, I've spent so much of my life surrounded by so many women, not that men don't also do hair. Um, but with the character, I just kind of saw her as not men, not really entering her mind much she and sexually she's super repressed i never even thought of her as a sexual character it took me a long time to figure out what that meant but so it just kind of naturally developed that all these characters were women and when we actually kind of got closer to making the film and i was breaking down the cast list is when i really realized i was like oh my god we only have like one male role that's and it's not very big it it seemed intentional but i really didn't do that it kind of just came out that way and I think that's why when we see all these films finally made by women like Babadook, Revenge, or Raw, like it's natural that the protagonist is now a female. And not that horror hasn't had that for a long time, but it, to be fair, they have female. The characters haven't been as developed, and yeah, we're finally getting you know more than just one type of person telling stories and. So that's super exciting. And it's natural, I think, to tell a story close to what you are or how you feel. So <laughs> sorry, that rant went on. <laughs> no, no. I, I think that, you know, um, there was a time when the role of women in, at least on screen in horror, was to be, you know, the bimbo who took her top off before a machete went through her chest. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, and then they said, oh, well, we're going to empower women by making one of those women a final girl. And, but it still never felt like it was coming from, well, an honest place because a lot of these people were guys and it was shot through a male gaze. And, you know, meanwhile, you have movies now like uh, Raw and The Invitation and uh, Mom, Mothers of Monsters, which I covered a few episodes ago, that are so uh, obviously different uh, that, that aren't from the male gaze. And I, th- I think it's amazing. Uh, and uh, speaking of uh, amazingly talented uh, women, uh, Najara Townsend, you could film her reading the phone book and I'd watch. Um, She's so talented. She- it's unreal. Yeah, yeah, on she, the same um, page you could read the phone yeah. book it'd probably be amazing yeah uh um she was in uh contracted uh a few years back and was just amazing in that and i was like man she's got to do more in the horror realm because yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm not really much for you know dramas and stuff but yeah to, so she i was looking forward to this movie and man she's great uh tell me about her yeah through contracted is actually how i was introduced to her as an actor and i got to meet her actually at a premiere of that film the trying to think was that 2014 maybe um and yeah i was so impressed with her performance because the whole film is really her like almost by herself in every scene completely falling apart it's like an incredible audition to show that she can do everything <laughs> and had the opportunity to get the short film script to her and she liked it. And we were just like on and go- we just started going and it, I was so intimidated. I still am by her talent because <laughs> she's so good. Um, but I don't know how we could have how this film. It's like I said, with the character, it's such a balance that I needed and I wanted her to feel so relatable, but she's also insane. And Najara can just say so much with like barely moving her eyes a certain direction. And, you know, there's many scenes in stylist where she's alone and there's no dialogue and she just blows us away in every scene. And, um, it's something about the fact that she can just portray so much with a look. Like even we have this big dance club scene, which is kind of her worst nightmare scenario. And when they are like, we should, we should go dance. And her reaction to it like kills me. Cause it's so perfect. It's just this ex- sudden expression in her face. That's small, but it's perfect. And I really think we owe Najara so much to how the film works because it could have come off campy or silly. And um, we really wanted her to feel relatable and real while being this crazy over the top serial killer. And and one thing I, because I, I, one of the issues with my anxiety is um, especially, you know, because I have, I, I had to, and I, I've gotten plenty of help. Uh, but uh, I, um, with my dependency issues and anxiety, whenever I was talking to someone that I respected or whatever, I found it like impossible to look them in the eyes. But at the same time, I was like trying to get a gauge of them. But if they looked up, I'm looking away. And I noticed that she's kind of doing a lot of that in the film. I don't know how much research she did in it or, but the timing of it was great of where she's clearly trying to go, how is this person being so natural? And then and uh, there's several times throughout the film where when the person looks over to speak to her or whatever, she kind of looks away in a very natural way that I kind of identified with. And so just little details like that, I thought, uh, again, uh, hit me where it hurt. Uh, so thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> Has she you- really portrayed anxiety in such a way What's weird is I don't feel like we talked a lot about anxiety specifically, which is something I really battle with, which maybe it was just obvious to Najara that that's what this was about. Um, she, yeah, she so much displays that those little uncomfortable moments and just got it. And I, I've been really happy to see, and it's opened my eyes to stuff that I didn't know I was putting into the movie, people really 
getting that from the film. They're like, oh, I identify so much with the anxiety she's going through. I was like, wow, I re- I put all my anxiety issues into this movie without realizing that was the, one of the main focuses. Yes, we, whether we know it or not, we're putting our anxiety out into the world. Uh, so yeah, um, uh, it, it's she's amazing. So, and I know that you know maybe some of this wasn't intentional, but um, there are scenes uh, where, like I said, I I felt bad for the uh, for the lady. I. Um, She's obviously trying to figure out how to connect with people, how to have friends, how to how do I do what you do when everyone else is just doing their thing? Um, and uh, it, it, like I said, it it really hit me and uh, and really connected as uh, authentic. Was there a? I guess there was a tightrope you had to walk through to kind of let's make this natural let's uh or like you said was it all her just instinct it was um we really wanted to like take the film completely into claire's perspective like put the viewer so much into her perspective that you almost start to see things in a distorted way like claire like there are moments where i feel like we completely identify with her. We don't like characters that she doesn't like when really, if you step back and think about it, you're like, well, there's no real reason not to like this character, but I've just become so much on Claire's side that I'm like completely disillusioned with, like, I think how she thinks now. Um, yep. And like, there's this kind of climactic scene with you know her and Bria's character, Olivia, where they have this conversation on a, parking deck roof and it's just a conversation but it's like heartbreaking from claire's side it's like the end of the world for claire but for olivia she's just laying out simple boundaries like i need space and it's a a normal thing to say it's not like i hate you go die now but that's what claire's hearing um and and it, it feels that way when you watch it it feels how claire feels and it's not totally honest to what's actually happening which is what we wanted people to come totally onto claire's side um and maybe question like well she's not really saying anything that's not totally understandable right now um same with her husband you know claire develops this kind of total dislike of him for no real reason um but we feel the same way and my editor actually pointed that out. He's like, you know what? I really am starting to dislike all these people, realizing there's no real reason. I just like Claire that much. <laughs> um, so I was like, that was our goal, to make people a little disillusioned with Claire. <laughs> yeah, even the first time I, uh, the first time it shows the husband, he kind of uh, walks into a room and starts talking. And I hated him instantly. But I only saw five seconds of this guy's life. <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's, no, you know, there's no real reason uh, to hate him. I just, I just did. I hated that five seconds of him. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and uh, that that moment that you mentioned before about boundaries, man, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as, as as someone who deals with anxiety and dependency issues. Uh, it immediately made me think of moments in my life where I always call it leaning on people, uh, where I'm like, you know, trying so hard to connect and so hard to be like, hey, validate my existence because, it, you know, and you can't say it, but in my head, there's some really, you know, suicidal or, you know, negative things going on in my head. Validate me. And sometimes that kind of push, push, push. You think it's you trying to connect, but what it really is, is, and you're getting way too close to me right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you're getting, you're, you're violating all kinds of boundaries. And I think we have to understand there's nothing wrong with her wanting about wanting boundaries. Uh, that's perfectly natural. <laughs> that's, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it, that was one of those stop the movie for a, a minute uh, scenes and kind of, uh, David. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, and, and kind of going off of that, the world is not out to get her. Uh, you know, you know, yes, there are people who have uh, shades of opinions of her just because 
she walks into their life. It's kind of creepy because of the anxiety stuff. And, you know, people are entitled to kind of respond how they respond. Um, but it's not like people are out to get her or ruin her life. Um, there's even, uh, you know, um, uh, Olivia is, uh, Brie Grant is sympathetic. I mean, you, you can see where she's picking up, oh, there's something, there's something up here that I didn't know. And I don't really know how to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but is it my, do I? Is it my? Is it now my role to deal with it? Because I don't think it is. Uh, and so, uh, especially from uh, from Bree Grant's uh, perspective, uh, can you talk a bit about how her character uh, came about to where you didn't make her obviously? Uh, like I said, it, there's there's points where you're like, "Come on, Olivia, please just rescue this girl." But it's not so black and white like that. Can you can you talk a little bit about that process with her character since she's the other lead in the in the film? Yeah, I think I never wanted the idea with her not being like a savior. Um, to me, I guess boils down to like the simple idea. I feel like now I'm gonna get into all theory stuff, but that like a person you know, like no one can save another person if we're talking just about in general and it, getting help with something. And also having that, like you're saying, what I call like the victim mentality, like everything is happening to me. The world is out to get me feel sorry for me. Um, you know, that is, uh, is not a truth. And plenty of people do get stuck in that dark, like spiral. And it's just leads to more destructive feelings and things. And um, I guess ultimately this is like a tragedy about someone who doesn't realize that they have to save themselves. Um, and so with her, I just wanted her to be a, you know, a kind person, but that also, yeah, didn't feel like this isn't my responsibility to save this person it is healthy to have boundaries and to be able to say them to people. Um, and, um, just wanted her to be like a very independent, strong woman who was kind of a role model for her, but wasn't going to take this thing on. Um, and then through the lens of the film, like I said, so much, it was all from Claire's perspective. So, we present her in this way, like Claire sees her as perfect. Of course, no one sees themselves as perfect. And when I talked to Bria about her character, I was like, she, I had a lot of backstory. But I was like, we won't learn a lot about this about her, but it's important for you and I to know it. It was interesting because she's kind of like, she's created as like the anti-Claire. So to me, she was never nearly as developed as Claire when I talked to Brie about it, she was still like, this is more development than any director's ever given me or backstory on any, on any character. Um, but I felt like real insecure about it. Cause it's like, Claire has like years of, of backstory I've worked on. Um, but Olivia has always been designed as the anti Claire. Claire sees her as they both came from the similar background they had the same thing happen to them as a kid. And it's like, so why did Claire end up here? But yet, but Olivia ended up in this perfect place. So they're kind of like doppelgangers and uh, opposites. And so, so much of Claire's or Olivia's character was about this anti-Claire and all this theory versus why doesn't she actually help Claire? Um, sorry, I just went on a rant there. <laughs> no, you know, the people who know me and like who personally know me are listening to you right now going, are we sure this movie isn't about David? Um, because, because, uh, which everyone knows I can't cut hair. Um, but yeah, it, it's the idea of looking towards other people as the superhero who, Oh, you face challenges and look how your life is perfect and you've overcome. And I'm so pathetic and I haven't, 
you know, been able to overcome this and looking to those people and almost trying to force them to rescue you and be your savior. It's not their responsibility. Uh, you're not going to, I mean, I can say this from personal experience. You're not going to feel any better until you go and get uh, help for yourself and learn how to love yourself. Um, it's no one's responsibility and no one can do it anyway. Um, so that's my rant about, about the film. And like I said, it really, really connected with me. Um, and I also want to say for the people out there who are like, look, is there killing in this movie? I mean, is this, is this a horror movie? Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, there's also that. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really an amazing film that uh it's one it's one of those films that hit me on a couple of levels to where i could watch it and feel the adrenaline of the moment of you know the the killing scenes and that sort of thing and some of the suspenseful scenes you could definitely feel that but then after the fact uh the next day you're examining your own life and going okay clearly i'm not going to scalp anyone but why am I feeling the way I'm feeling right now about this character? <laughs> and so you've, you've accomplished a lot with this film. I don't know how you did it. Um, <laughs> well, thank you very much. We spent a lot of time writing it and developing the, the production. So um, when it's not available when we're recording this, but it will be by the time we're, uh, or it's going to be about to be released when we put this out. Uh, tell everyone where they can find it. Is there a release planned? Uh, I'm certainly going to buy it so I can watch it again. Yes, we are so excited. I can't believe it's so soon. Um, we will be releasing on Arrow Player on March 1st, which is Arrow Videos streaming channel. Um, we'll be there exclusively for a few months. And then in June, we will be released on VOD and Blu-ray, which if you all know, Arrow's Blu-rays are like freaking incredible collect, like everything they put out is, is collectible. And so we've like, you know, I'm so excited. We've been working with a really exciting artist on all the cover and it's been a dream come true working with Arrow. So I can't wait for people to see it. And we actually have a few random virtual festivals over the next month or two and hoping for a small theatrical this summer, depending, of course, on, on the if there are the theaters. <laughs> yes. There's theaters, <laughs> yeah. if COVID is horrible, so many things. I, I love the film. It's one of those films that really hits me hard uh, and uh, is going to stick with me for a long time. Everyone should watch the short right now because that's available and that's going to give you a little bit of a prelude into the film and you're going to go oh there's more there's more to this and trust me there's more to it <laughs> uh so uh, so thank you so so much for joining me thank i you. really really appreciate it the stylist will be available online on march 1st 2021 make sure you watch this movie i really really enjoyed it now, to give us a little more depth into social anxiety, what it is, what are the treatments, I'm very happy to have as my next guest, Dr. Christine Perdon. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, director of clinical training in the PhD program at the University of Waterloo, and the co-author of Overcoming Obsessive Thoughts. Welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, you may not know this, but it is uh, Women in Horror Month, uh, <laughs> February is, and um, so The Stylist, the movie that we're uh, focusing on, uh, that was directed by, uh, written and directed by a woman, and I thought, if I get a guy to mansplain <laughs> these subjects, uh, <laughs> people are going to kill me, so thank you. More than you possibly could know uh, for being here. Uh, so, uh, first of all, um, if you don't mind, do you mind uh, talking a bit about your book? Uh, it's uh, overcoming obsessive thoughts. Uh, mm -hmm. That's it, it's not uh, now. It's it's a part of OCD, but it's not your. I have to make sure the house is constantly clean or anything like that. Your focus on that book is. Uh, you more to do with other thoughts, uh, like violent or, or 
that sort of thing. Can you uh, get into a little bit about what people would learn in your book? Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, so you're absolutely right. A lot of people immediately think of OCD as being like contamination fears and cleaning or else checking things lots and lots. Uh, and in fact, and those are absolutely part of OCD, but uh, the book that I wrote with um, David A. Clark is uh, addresses a type of OCD that we think of as like being characterized by repugnant obsessions. So these are thoughts, images, or impulses of doing or saying something you would never really want to do or say. So harming somebody, uh, saying something blasphemous or doing something blasphemous, um, and uh, in thoughts of sexual acts that are repugnant to you. And so these kinds of thoughts, uh, we don't necessarily realize are part of OCD, and uh, they are associated with a lot of mental compulsions. So that's something else people don't really know about OCD is that people can be doing compulsions in their head. So for example, people might be doing like a really excessive prayer cycle to try to neutralize a blasphemous thought, or they may try to think a good image in response to having just had a flash of one of their obsessional negative images. So the book talks about how to think about why this is persisting and what people can do about it. And I I have to do this all the time, but I'm never going to get sick of doing it. Obviously, uh, when we talk about movies, we're talking about fictional events that are intentionally ex- uh, uh, to the extreme. Uh, the vast majority of people who have any sort of thoughts like this are not going to act out on them and do anything like that. How does, like, what is the, can the, can the average person, do they get help from someone like you to kind of help turn those thoughts off? Or is there a treatment method for that or? Yeah, no. So, um, so it's so true that like, I think I'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up that point that people who have these thoughts are horrified by them and they do not act on them. There's no known instance of somebody acting on an obsessional thought. If somebody acts on a violent impulse, it's because of something else going on. So what, what we do with the, the thoughts is, first of all, we, we help people recognize that thoughts aren't facts. And so one of the reasons that these thoughts capture mental interest and capture attention is that they're so horrific and so out of character. And so people then start thinking, why would a person like me have a thought like this? And what's interesting is that most people um, have thoughts like this from time to time. So this was actually some research we did a long, long time ago, uh, where we found that the, a lot of people, well, almost almost the entire sample of people that we we looked at, have thoughts of like driving into the next lane, uh, swerving into the next lane while driving, or a flash of a thought of doing something really sexually inappropriate, or you know, yelling bomb at the airport or something terrible with lots of consequences that they'd never do. But the big difference between people who have those thoughts and then just go on about their lives um, and the people who start to get problems with them is that the people who develop problems start to think, yeah, like, why would a person like me have a thought like this? Maybe I'm a homicidal maniac at heart, or maybe I'm a pedophile and I just didn't realize it before. And they start to get very, very, very worried about what the thought means and what it means about the personality. And whereas other people are able to say, gee, even a you know person like me can have a thought like that, people who are prone to developing a problem with, with obsessional thoughts like this are, are more likely to think, gosh, uh, this thought means I am this kind of person. So it sort of changes the self-view from being a benign person to being a dangerous person. And so then the thoughts then get a lot more attentional priority because it seems to have a really deep personal meaning. And then the person starts doing compulsions. uh, So like thinking a a positive thought in response to the negative thought, but then they also uh, start doing a lot of avoidance. So they might uh, avoid going near a playground. If they're having thoughts about that are involved children, they might avoid going to a playground. They might avoid um, touching their own children. They might avoid changing a diaper. They may avoid going to church. And the problem with that is that they don't have a chance to learn anything new about what the thought actually means, and it undermines their capacity to trust themselves. So they they don't develop the sense that, you know what, this is just a thought. It doesn't mean I'm going to do it. So what we try to do to help people is, first of all, just help them tolerate the thought. That doesn't mean like it or condone it. 
but just to tolerate it and treat it as a thought that goes through one's head as any other kind of thought, and then start to step back from how they've been evaluating the meaning and start to recognize that their idea about what this thought means is not a fact either, and that we can think about these thoughts in different ways. And then what we also want to do is help the person live with uncertainty. So what happens is that somebody will kind of know they're not a pedophile, for example, or they kind of know this isn't blasphemous, but it could be like they can't rule it out completely. So they feel the need to uh, address the thought and to do this avoidance. And so what we do is help them tolerate, learn to tolerate uncertainty and to recognize that they're still allowed to get on with their lives, despite not knowing for sure whether or not they're a pedophile or a sex offender, or whether or not they are um, out of out of um, grace with God. We we help them just move on with their lives, despite that that bit of uncertainty. And eventually, what happens is that their reactivity to the thought starts to go away. Their need to do something in response to go to the thought goes away and eventually the thought itself starts to kind of recede. Yeah. And, and really we've all thought, uh, we've all been driving and thought I'm going to hit that guy that, yeah. uh, <laughs> that cut me off. I'm going to slam my car into him. And, uh, then you just, you know, you get over it. It sounds a little bit like, uh, which, you know, we're going into, um, I'm sure it's different, but, uh, I have a generalized anxiety disorder and, uh, the character that's in uh, the stylist uh, has uh, social anxiety issues. It sounds like there's a little bit of overlap there and you kind of think about it and ruminate on it and just dwell on it. Uh, is there like a crossover between people with anxiety and then people that have a con- uh, like an obsession uh, issue? Yeah, it's, that's an interesting question because um, most people with obsessive compulsive disorder probably have another diagnosis as well. And often it's either social anxiety or depression. (laughs) And GAD and social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder and OCD can often go together as well. So there does seem to be potentially some common route to how the anxiety sort of manifests itself, for sure. Going on anxiety, how do you navigate? And I, of course, know that I poorly navigated the world. (laughs) um, But just in general, if someone is, because everyone says, you know, and, and I don't mean to discount anyone's experience, but everyone has anxiety uh, mm-hmm. about something or other. And then there's that step where you have someone like me who I couldn't leave the house for a year because mm-hmm. I thought that if someone saw me checking the mail, it would ruin their world and it would be the, the most terrible thing that could possibly happen to them. So, how, you know, for someone with that uh, serious form of anxiety, how do you navigate the world? Uh, <laughs> there's uh, there's a scene in the stylist that takes place when they're going to get in their cars where, um, and I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but it hit me really hard because the the main character was trying desperately to connect with a human being, uh, to, hey be my friend. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the more she was trying to do it, you could see the other character kind of like getting creeped out and mm-hmm. saying, this is, you're not doing it the normal way that humans interact. And I, <laughs> and, and frankly, I saw myself in a lot of that. Uh, um, sorry for those of you who uh, I did that too. Um, so I guess I'm, I guess to get into a little bit about the trap that people fall into, uh, and, um, you know, how do they, how, how do they live their lives and break out of that cycle? Yeah, no, such a good question. And I mean, you're absolutely right. Everybody has anxiety and it's, it's actually a good thing that we have that, um, because it motivates us it, and it allows us in extreme situations, like where we're actually, our physical well being is in danger. It optimizes our capacity to flee or fight danger. Um, and, and again, in, you know, when we live in, where we in in Canada, at least where I am, uh, the chance of physical predation is actually pretty low. But there's uh, a lot of other types of threat, like social threat or um, missing a deadline threat, and therefore career goal threat. And so the that burst of anxiety can get you really focused and get you to accomplish your goals. 
However, there are a subset of people where that anxiety response is being triggered. Uh, what we might—I don't want to use the word inappropriately—but in in the absence of an objective threat, um, and it's more where the mind is is saying there's a threat. But if we step back from it and evaluate it, we can see ways that that process has been hijacked by the anxiety to produce a sense of threat when actually there really may not be one there. So those are the people with that with social anxiety, generalized anxiety, OCD, uh, et cetera. And yeah, so the, the trap of anxiety is that uh, people feel anxious. Hold on, let, let me see if I remember it. Sorry. Trigger, response, avoidance pattern. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So it's, we don't like being anxious and that's a that's an adaptive response. Like we need to remember that the anxiety response evolved to protect us as a species or allowed us to evolve as a species. So the anxiety response A errs on the side of false positives. Um, so it's it's more likely to cause an anxiety, like to trigger anxiety when there's nothing there, rather than the error on the side of not triggering anxiety when there is something there. Um, but it it's um also meant to focus our attention on threat. And so that when we're anxious, we become very focused, like our, our, it actually affects our mind. And a lot of people don't recognize this as part of the anxiety arousal, which is that once it's triggered, it focuses our mind on threat at the expense of equally relevant, but unrelated to threat information. So, for example, somebody with social anxiety might be giving, a, under great duress, giving a talk, and there'll be, you know, 50 people in the audience. One of those people is on their phone or looks bored. That person with social anxiety will instantly pick up on that person, and it'll come at the expense of seeing all the other engaged, happy faces. So then it becomes, okay, look, I'm, I'm failing at this speech. And then there's a lot of um, self-monitoring of what's happening, which we're not, we don't have great attentional bandwidth and, or, and great working memory. So when we're trying to monitor how or our own performance while we're performing and judge ourselves and uh, catastrophize about the consequences of not getting it together and get, and, and get on with it, it actually limits our capacity to do our job properly. So uh, one thing that happens is that um, for, like you were talking about the awkwardness in social situations. So people with social anxiety are multitasking at the speed of light. So first of all, they may have really, really strong, uh, like exaggerated ideas about what other people expect from them. So they may go into a social situation thinking that they need to talk like one of the most intelligent people on earth and they need to be witty and funny like the best comedians. Um, and they also may think that unless they can do that, they will that like that they, they only get one shot at this first impression. And if they blow it, no one will ever kind of view them favorably. So they go in loaded with an enormous amount of pressure. And then they're monitoring the other person so closely to see, like, am I doing okay with them or not? And that, I think, is what can create that sense of awkwardness um, that because they're not able to just be themselves and be spontaneous and natural. And people pick up on that kind of quickly and start to like think, what is going on with this person? And, and can start to withdraw, which then confirms the person's ideas about themselves. So I think that that's a real trap. And then once, so, so then it makes it harder to go into the social situation the next time. But the other point I was going to make about anxiety is that it's very aversive. So when we feel a sense of anxiety, we're highly motivated to escape whatever situation it is, because way back as we were evolving as a species, we, we don't have big teeth. We don't have claws. Our skin is soft. Like we're really not like we're just easy prey. Um, so the way we survive is with a really, really functional alarm system that helps us uh, flee and fight and anticipate flee and fight threat. So when we feel anxiety, we automatically assume there's something to be anxious about. And we do get this big um, escape or flight kind of mechanism. So I, we're very motivated to do whatever it takes to reduce 
that anxious response. And so often like we'll flee the situation or if we can't flee it, we'll avoid the anxiety evoking aspects of the situation. So somebody with social anxiety at a party may avoid uh, chatting with kind of the popular people or the people that they think are more intelligent than they are. And instead what they might do is go help the hostess pass out hors d'oeuvres. So then they're not on the hook for any kind of conversations and they still look helpful or they may drink a lot because then a like drinking calms it down a bit. But also if they do something foolish, it'll be attributed to the alcohol and not to them being silly or weak or foolish or something. So even if people go through the situation, they come away thinking, oh, my gosh, that was awful. And I needed to do all those things to get through it. If they leave the situation, they feel better. So what we learn is when, I, when I'm in the situation, I feel bad. When I'm out of the situation, I feel better. So if fight and flight responses are, are sort of rewarded. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I wasn't aware I was going to be so personally attacked in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel seen? <laughs> uh, man. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, welcome to my life. She just explained it better than I did. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I think that the, the weird thing with me was I never realized that that wasn't life until mm-hmm. it was pointed out to me by a professional and I got on medication and went through the uh, the um, uh, behavioral activation therapy and stuff like that to where I, I realized, oh, you mean everyone doesn't think this way? <laughs> this actually isn't life um and because it re- it really is i always said that i was like um the world's biggest conspiracy theorist and i was the conspiracy so i, I was constantly <laughs> going hey i said hi to that person and they looked the other way after saying hi why would they do mm-hmm. that they must hate me i bet they're talking about me right now and then <laughs> four hours later i'm like i should have told a funny joke or something and it's like David, get over yourself. Um, <laughs> so for the people who know that there's there's someone in their life that's going through this, and I, like I said, I didn't know I was going through something. I just thought I was worthless. Mm. What can the what can the person who knows them do to kind of direct them? Is there an appropriate action? Because I know a lot of people that I knew that kind of maybe you know, didn't, didn't know how to act. So they kind of parted ways with me. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, they basically, they've said since I just didn't know what to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I knew something was wrong, but what am I supposed to do? Uh, is there a, is there a way to not walk on eggshells, but kind of, uh, direct someone in the right direction? Yeah. So I think one, one thing about anxiety, because, um, it, people are in distress when they're anxious. And so if they reveal that distress and people with social anxiety are highly motivated to try to conceal those anxiety responses because people with social anxiety often are of the opinion that if other people see them looking anxious, they'll think the other person will think they're weak and not worthy. And so there's a lot of effort can be put into trying to mask symptoms of social anxiety. So people will wear a turtleneck, for example, to disguise blushing and, and such even when it's like quite warm out. Uh, but the other thing that, that the people around somebody with anxiety, um, are, I mean, our, our, our instinct is to, is to soothe, is to try to calm down the anxiety and to accommodate the anxiety, to do what the person wants. Um, and the problem is it puts the anxiety in the driver's seat. And so it, although it's an empathic response, it, the, the anxiety is insatiable. So the more you accommodate, the more it wants. There's, there's no bottom to this. Uh, so, so people will, um, you know, they'll, they'll follow all kinds of rules. People with family members of OCD follow tons of rules that the person with OCD sets up to order in, in order to try to reduce their anxiety. Uh, family members of people with social anxiety will follow rules like make sure that they never leave the side of the person or that they seat the person in the corner and bring them the food and the drink and then bring them someone friendly to talk to and then take that person away, you know, just like really accommodate the symptoms. And, and it makes sense why people do that. But the problem is that the, the, there's no new learning available about the true nature of the person's anxiety. And the number and range of situations that need to be accommodated tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And that's where, you know, initially friends might be super supportive, but over time they're like, you know, I just, I can't do this. It's too complex to be out with this person because there's too many rules or things I need to do or too many insecurities. And so I think, I mean, friends aren't going to be able to do very much to, to help the person overcome social anxiety. But what friends can do is try to work against the anxieties, try to driven need to kind of protect and, and um, keep the person from being out there. So I think friends can, uh, you know, take the person to a party and say, you know, just, you know, come with us and uh, stay for, uh, you know, two, two hours and talk to these people um, and just kind of check in on, on them, but try to have them in the situation and try to have them uh, being, try to point out information that's not consistent with what the anxiety is telling them. Again, friends are not going to be able to do much to overcome it. It really, that, that kind of anxiety that we're, we're talking about typically doesn't remit on its own. And if the person could overcome it or if friends could help them overcome it, it would have happened by now. So I think professional help is really important and evidence-based professional help, like so cognitive behavior therapy, for example, um, not supportive counseling. That's not going to do much to challenge the anxiety. Right. Thank you, because the the end result <laughs> is don't rely on the people you know to be experts in the field. You got to go to someone who actually has a degree and knows how to uh, who knows how to work this, um, b- because it's just like you mentioned, it's it's a black hole. I mean, if someone were to walk up to me, at, you know, uh, a few years ago and say, oh, David, you're one of my favorite people, then I'd go what do you mean one of? And I'd be thinking, well, how many people are ahead of me? Why did they say that to me? That must mean that I'm really not one of their favorite people. There's, there's no way to overcome that. So, uh, you have to get into, um, uh, well, I mean, I guess there's other methods, but, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, I think did wonders for me. And, and that's basically kind of, uh, rewiring your brain, uh, uh, starting, uh, I, I know no, we're not going to go through the whole thing, but, uh, mm-hmm. I, I started with like the daily planner of like putting my feelings down every hour and what I did and all that kind of stuff. And through the process, you just kind of, uh, uh, not, not to give the whole, uh, program away, but you basically rewire people's brains. Well, so, yeah. So I think what you're doing and like what the way I see the, the goal and purpose of cognitive behavior therapy is to override the automatic processes that are driving the emotion or and or behavior of complaint. So with an anxiety response, when the anxiety gets triggered, the there are the physiological changes in the body that prepare the body to flee or fight danger. And then there's the emotion, which could be fear, anger, uh, which we, I'll talk about in a minute, um, but panic, terror, etc., Uh, Or even just a low grade sense of dread or threat or doom or like the shoe is going to drop. I just know it. I just don't know what it's going to be. But um, also more importantly is that the again this this shift in attentional um, uh, priority. So it's important to recognize the way our attentional system works is that at any given moment we could be having a hundred different thoughts. So we could be thinking about what are we going to put on for dinner? Where is my cat? Is it going to barge in and ruin this podcast? Um, is or, or we could be focusing on the exact uh, matter at hand. And our ability to function adaptively relies on an intentional system that can prioritize information most relevant to our immediate goals. And what happens with anxiety is that uh, threat-relevant information is given attentional priority. It's, it's triggered, it's, it gets immediate attentional capture. So we notice threat cues very, very quickly. And then we stick on them or we try to avoid them, but that requires a whole bunch of attentional effort as well. The other thing that's kind of interesting to think about with anxiety is that it's the amygdala, which is an area of the brain that people refer to as the emotion center, but it's nestled right against the hippocampus, which is our memory bank. And when they, what they think is going on is that when the amygdala is activated with anxiety, it knocks on the door of the hippocampus and says, I need to respond to this situational threat really fast. Can you give me a relevant memory that helps me know what to do? And so what happens is then you get memories of similar situations. So let's say when you were 
in grade six, you were humiliated by a teacher in front of the class and they all laughed. You may carry that with you in ways that you may not realize. So now if you're in a meeting and uh, um, it's a similar type of situation where you've got somebody in the meeting who's like that really super mean, unprofessional teacher, it may activate immediately that memory. And your response might be, this is dangerous. Don't even say anything at the meeting. Um, so you may be responding to old off autobiographical things that have come up very quickly because, again, anxiety is meant to um, help you act very, very quickly in the in the sense of in the face of threat or perceived threat. So we we can um, have a lot of processing that's happening without outside of our awareness that that's really what's going on. And in cognitive behavior therapy, what we do is help people take that mental step backward. And look at the conclusions that the anxiety is presenting to the person on a silver platter as if they're facts. So, for example, in this meeting situation, the conclusion, rapid conclusion is don't say anything or you're going to be mocked or humiliated. And so then you don't say anything, but then that has consequences. And you sit the whole meeting worrying about being called on. But it's presented this idea as a fact in your brain. And it hasn't given you the opportunity to step back and evaluate, well, wait a minute, is that really a fact? Do I know for sure that's happening? And it doesn't give you a chance to get new learning about the meaning and importance of even that memory. I mean, that memory is, means that the teacher was very unprofessional and cruel, not that you're an idiot, um, and, but you don't have a chance to update that meaning. So cognitive behavior therapy is meant to help override those automatic processes and engage the upper areas of the brain, the frontal lobes of the brain, to actually take a mental step backward, look at the information that uh, is is that you feel supports the anxiety um, idea, uh, but also zoom out and look at the information that doesn't support the anxiety idea, and then you have an opportunity to see what is the idea that best fits all of the information, not just the information that the anxiety makes available to you through that attentional prioritizing. And honestly, I don't know. I mean, I guess everyone does uh, have bits of this, but it's amazing how um, when I started going through uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, where you were noted, where I would notice something happened to me decades ago, and it affects the way I act on a daily basis today. Yeah. Uh, and and that's just it's such a shame because there's so many people like myself that are walking around not living up to their full potential because they're constantly reacting to a non-existent threat based off of a memory from you know like you said you know sixth grade or what have you mm -hmm. um yeah and that's uh it 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 sucks and that's why I really am glad that you were willing to come and explain it to people <laughs> in a way that I can't because, look, nobody's given me a degree, okay? Uh, <laughs> that ain't happening. Um, so, uh, yeah, it it really means a lot to me um, to kind of put this into words because it's it's so difficult to understand. Wait, you, everyone feels anxiety. Yours is... Is your yours is different from mine? Yes, it it, it, it sometimes can be. So, uh, I I really really appreciate it, and uh, everyone should uh, if if you're having that issue, go get cognitive behavioral therapy. It's amazing. Um, hmm. it, it, it'll it, it'll uh, and and that's what you you specialize in, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. See, I don't I, I don't pick scrubs here. Okay. <laughs> I pick people who know what they're doing and, it, you know, uh, you know, you are in Canada, which, uh, you know, um, you guys are a, a wonderful country up there. Uh, I, when COVID's over, I'm planning to visit. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, I'm sure you do amazing work up there. Thank you so much for educating me and everyone else, even though, you had to show people a little bit of a side of me I didn't want to tell. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but thank you very, very much. Oh, my pleasure. It really is. And that is our show. I'd like to thank my guests, Jill Gavargazian, 
The Stylist will be available everywhere March 1st. Watch that movie. It's amazing. And psychologist Christine Perdon. And of course, thank all of you for listening. And uh, thanks for bearing with us while we go through a lot of changes here. We're a new nonprofit. When this podcast started, we were not a nonprofit. And now we are. And so much is changing for us. And uh, thank you for being patient while we grow. You can reach out to us at info at gwecontact.org or on social media at gwecontact on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll talk with you again soon. And remember, like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet.